Hey, open up your Bible to John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to pull out your phone and uh, just scroll the internet while we're doing this. Uh, no, but look up John chapter 9. I'm reading this book right now called The God You Can Know. It's written by a man named Dan DeHaan who I never had the pleasure of meeting personally. He was sort of uh, one of those uh, legends of the faith uh, in his local area. And so he was from the Atlanta, Georgia area. And in the 70s and early 80s, he just had a tremendous amount of influence there. And while he was in the peak of his ministry, he wrote this book, The God You Can Know. It's very good. It's kind of a simple book, uh, but it, it, it's, it, it really is uh, impactful. And, and I heard the story about how he passed away, he actually passed away sort of in the prime of his life. He had just gotten his pilot's license and he was a traveling evangelist. So instead of taking a commercial plane or driving or all of those kinds of things, uh, he said, I'm gonna fly myself to my next preaching opportunity. And so uh, he was flying from somewhere in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, something like that, to uh, West Virginia, Virginia, that area. And he got over to the Smoky Mountains uh, and in this plane, uh, there was a storm or fog or something ended up dying, crashing into uh, one of the mountains. And, it, and so it took them a while to find him. This is in the early 80s, I think. And, and so when they found him, uh, he had his Bible in his lap, uh, which they were led to believe probably he didn't die instantly. Um, but uh, as he was dying, he reached over and he, uh, you know, grabbed his Bible and was comforted by it probably as he met the Lord. And, and so I've been thinking about that story uh, the last couple of weeks. And, um, and, and that's, that's why I asked you to pull out your Bible. And, and I really want you to bring your Bible with you because sometimes we put the scriptures on the screen. But, um, you know, when we come to church on Sunday morning, mostly we are pretty good. It doesn't mean that there's like not heavy things uh, waiting for us out after we get out of church today. But, you know, we had Saturday to kind of shake off our manager is the worst and I don't like working. We shake all that stuff off. So when we come on Sunday morning, most of us come in a pretty good mood. I mean, you're mad at your spouse, but other than that, in a pretty good, good mood. Um, but during the week, what are you going to reach for? Right? And, and I'm not there during the week. And these screens up here are not there for you during the week. Um, you, you need to be able to walk around the scripture for yourself when you need it. And so bringing it on Sunday morning, if we can walk around together in your Bible, um, if we can do it here, then you can do it anywhere. I think I'm pretty clear that I am not a genius. Uh, so if I can do this, uh, then you for sure can do it. So if you didn't bring your Bible uh, this week, that's great. Uh, I bet we have a bunch of Bibles out in the lobby. We'd love to give you one, but I'd encourage you to bring it next week. Everybody feel properly guilted. That's the pastor's job. All right, John chapter nine. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the disciples asked a question, uh, why did this happen that this man was born blind? And his life was very difficult. First, if, if you're blind in the first century, your life is difficult period in the sentence. This man had some other obstacles to overcome. Uh, he was a beggar. We're going to find that out in just a second. Uh, it, next week, we're going to learn a little bit about his parents. And so his parents are around, but yet he's a beggar. 
So if you put two and two together, it means that at some point his parents, for whatever reason, we, I guess we don't need to judge them. We don't know their specific story. They said, even though you have this physical disability, we are not taking care of you. You get out there, you find your own money, uh, and, uh, and, and what happens next week, this is a little preview, so you don't even need to come next week, uh, is the, some religious leaders come and ask his parents about him, and they do what any good parent would do. Uh, they wad him up into a ball and throw him under the bus. They, they essentially say, uh, we're not going to answer for him, uh, you go and investigate him yourself. Right? So he's blind. He has to beg. In my opinion, he, he does not have good parents. Uh, this guy's life is very hard. And the disciples see that. They recognize that. And they ask Jesus, whose fault is this? Is this his fault? Is this his parents' fault? Jesus says neither. Verse 6. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Now, there are three instances in the Gospels in which Jesus uses his saliva to heal people. There were two blind people and there was one deaf person. Now, Christians for the last almost 2,000 years have been asking themselves why Jesus used his saliva to heal. I mean, er earlier... Um, in one of the gospels, Jesus is at a funeral procession and he reaches into what we would call a casket, touches the young man, and he comes back to life. So there's nothing special about his spit um, that pushes healing over the edge. Uh, but for some reason, he makes some mud, puts the mud on this guy's eyes, and then gives him some instructions. Verse 7, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now, John tells us the location of where Jesus instructed this man to go, go to the pool of Siloam. But that means very little to us. It would be like if someone said, go to the pool of Tomball. You wouldn't think that much about it. You'd just say, well, that's just where the pool is. And so I'm going to go over to there to the pool of Tomball. But John interprets it for us. Right? He says, Jesus gives him the instructions, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word, parentheses, means sent. Now, the reason that John does that is because that word is one of the themes of his gospel, that God has sent Jesus into the world, his beloved son, and through Jesus, we can have eternal life. So John is just connecting the dots for us today. Hey, remember, as you're reading through this gospel, one of the themes is God has sent Jesus to earth to give us eternal life. I'm just bringing that up right now. Verse 8. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. Don't you love that they're having an argument about who he is right in front of him? Is that the guy who used to beg here? I think it is. No, I think it only looks like him. He's like, hey, I'm right here. Yeah, that's me. Verse 10. How then were your eyes open, they asked. And he replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to, to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. And next week we're going to find out uh, what happens after he says to them, I don't know. And they're going to go and find Jesus. And Jesus is going to use this as an opportunity to help explain more about him. But it all starts with a question that the disciples have. Why is this man suffering? 
And that's a really natural question to ask, isn't it? It didn't make sense to them why this man would be suffering. So, so we see this little progression in them. There's the question, why? Um, then there's an assumption that they made, that he sinned or his parents sinned. And then we see that they've made a conclusion then about God. God is a punisher of sin. Now, in the scripture, it does say that God punishes sin. But the scripture says lots about God. But they've just boiled it down to, there's really only one option to answer the question, why was this man born blind? God punishes sin. That's my primary lens through which I view God. So if this man is suffering, somebody has sinned. It's either he sinned, but he was blind from birth. So, I mean, did he sin in the womb? How did that work? No, maybe he didn't sin. Maybe his parents sinned. So they asked the question, why did this happen? They made an assumption, somebody sinned. Because they have a view of God. God is primarily a punisher of sin. But you can see that they were wrong. And we go through that progression pretty fast ourselves. Right? We pray and our prayers go unanswered. So we make an assumption based on our question of why did my prayer go unanswered? God must have been unmoved by my request. Then we form a conclusion about him. He doesn't care about me. And, and, and that can happen in a split second. Right? A.W. Tozer says the most important thing about you is what you think when you think about God. So those questions that we ask about God, they're incredibly influential. Right? Because it, it gives us assumptions, which then we form conclusions about God that may or may not be true. They may be partially true, but not wholly true. And the disciples are going through this. They just can't understand why this happened, right? And, and we, we do that. The, the reason that we ask God why, why am I suffering? Why are other people suffering in this world? Why are you not doing anything about it? Is because we have this sense of justice inside of us, right? And if, if I do something good, God is obligated to also do something good. Makes sense to us then, if I do something bad, then God might punish me, but the scales are balanced. Right? I do this, God does that. God does that, I do this. Right? Sometimes people walk away from the faith because they feel like their scales are not balanced. You know? They feel like they've done a lot of good things, and so God owes them something and when God does not come through on that, they think, well, this isn't right, and so I'm going to leave. Or have you ever noticed this instinct in yourself when there are bad things happening to you, right? things that are not your fault, and God does not fix those things quickly, we look for a way to balance the scales. Right? Well, I'm going to stop coming to church. Uh, I'm going to stop giving. I'm going to stop serving. Uh, I'm going to still go through the motions, but I'm not going to mean it as much. There's this real sense in us. Why is there injustice? I mean, we look around the world and we see children are starving in Africa or, or wherever, and there's something that feels wrong about that, right? Why? We want internally for our scales to be balanced with God. And when they're not, it really bothers us. And so these disciples are looking at this man who's been born blind and they're, they're like, it's somebody's fault. Because then it makes sense, right? 
if this man is born blind, something he was born blind, but it's his fault, okay, the scales are balanced. Or if it's his parents' fault, the scales are balanced. It makes sense to us. But suffering in the scripture cannot be boiled down to just one thing. Uh, my, my wife's, my, my favorite thing that my wife Amanda makes is taco soup. And uh, taco soup is, is real expensive to make because it requires all of the ingredients. You're like, which ones? No, I mean like all of them. Any kind of uh, Mexican taco umbrella ingredient, it goes in this soup and it's incredibly delicious. It's got tons of vegetables in it. It's got beef in it, uh, chicken, no. Um, you know, it's got everything in it and, it and it's delicious. And the way the scripture presents suffering and why suffering is like that. It's a stew of suffering. It has lots of ingredients. It makes us feel better if we can just point to the one reason why I'm experiencing this pain, but the scripture doesn't give us that luxury. There are a few things that the scripture says are causes of suffering in the world. If you wanted to write a few things down, this might be helpful to stick in the front of your Bible for later. Uh, Sometimes we suffer because sinful people are expressing their free will. That's what happens in Genesis chapter four when Cain picks up a rock and kills Abel. He was free to do that and and he did. Sometimes we're hurt because people are filled with sin. Uh, Sometimes we suffer because of the corrupting presence of sin upon the earth and its systems. So you weren't necessarily hurt by a person but you were hurt by the organization of people you hear that a lot from people who attended church at some point. Right? The church hurt me, is what they'll say. And it probably did. They can't necessarily point to one person. My pastor hurt me or this person hurt me. Just the system, the organizing of people hurt me. Remember in Romans chapter 8, it says that creation is groaning to, to get free of sin's corrupting influences. So sometimes when we experience pain in this world, it's because of the sin that has been woven into its fabric throughout history. Sometimes we suffer because God is producing character and endurance in us, James chapter one. Sometimes we suffer because God is disciplining us, Hebrews chapter 12. Sometimes we suffer because of the natural consequences of our own decisions. Galatians says, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. A man, what? Reaps what he sows. Sometimes we suffer because of our faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, if we're doing our faith right at some point, we will be persecuted. But you're glad that you signed up for this, huh? Sometimes we suffer as a test, James chapter 1. We also see this in the Old Testament, the Israelites. Remember how hard their life was in between uh, slavery in Egypt and the promised land? They're without food, they're without water, uh, they're nomads, they are attacked by various uh, places and nations that they kind of wander into their territory. And at the end of it, God kind of summarizes it as a test that he was giving Israel. Sometimes God tests us. Sometimes we suffer because God has sovereignly chosen it. First Thessalonians chapter three, verse three, first Peter chapter four, verse 19. Sometimes we suffer as a witness to the gospel. That's what the apostle Paul says, Philippians chapter one. When he says these chains that I have as I'm in prison, they've actually served a great purpose for the good news of Jesus. And um, it's like somebody's lit the good news on fire and now it's spreading throughout churches. It's spreading throughout the the Royal Roman guard because of his chains. Sometimes we suffer because there's a cosmic battle between good and evil. 
that we can't see, Job chapter one and two. Sometimes we suffer to display the power of God, Second Corinthians chapter 12, and sometimes we suffer because by suffering we're able to comfort others as they suffer, Second Corinthians chapter one, verses three through five. And we could go on and on and on and on. The point is, is that when we ask the question of why do I feel like my scales are unbalanced with God? Why do I feel like more bad things are happening to me right now than I deserve? We go to look for the one reason why, but the scripture says there's not just one reason why, and to look for just one reason is a fool's errand. They're all tied together. They're all just a part of the soup. It's almost always more than just one thing. But the disciples, they wanna know, why, why was this man born blind? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter four. read the few verses at the end of the chapter. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, the apostle Paul is writing these words not just these words, but the whole of Second Corinthians because he was a part of starting this church. He was really the father of this church, but then as his pattern was, he moved on uh, to start other churches to take the gospel other places in the Roman Empire. Well, after he left Corinth, uh, some Corinthians got together. They had some new teachers who came into town and, and they were like, maybe we shouldn't trust the apostle Paul. Why shouldn't we trust the apostle Paul? Well, have you ever noticed how many bad things happened to him? Right? Um, maybe he's not blessed by God. And these other teachers would come in and say, hey, nothing bad is happening to us. So I bet that is a sign of approval, right? Because even in their thinking, the scales have to be balanced. If bad things are happening to Paul, what does that mean? It means Paul is doing bad things. Nothing bad is happening to us, these new teachers in Corinth say. That means we are doing good things. So the Corinthians are really torn because that makes a lot of sense to them. But on the other hand, they know Paul. They were there with him when he, when he was teaching them about Christ. And so they write him a letter. Hey, we're thinking about not believing you anymore. And he hears words about it. And so he writes them some very harsh letters. 2 Corinthians is a very harsh letter. Right? And he says to them, we all suffer, but we don't lose heart. Though outwardly are we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now turn to the end of the second Corinthians in chapter 11. This is his quote, light and momentary troubles. So right now he's, he's uh, confronting these, t these new teachers head on. He says in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? Then he puts in parentheses, uh, what I'm getting ready to say is crazy. This is so unlike me, I'm getting ready to brag. I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better servant of Christ. I have worked much harder. Okay, that makes sense to us. How do you know that you're a better servant of Christ than these new guys? I work harder than them. We're with him so far. But then look what he says next. 
I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently. Why should you nominate me as your pastor? Because I go to jail a lot. Been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled, and I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak, and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin, and I do not inwardly burn? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So he says, here's my resume. You should trust me because of my light and momentary sufferings. But I don't know about you, but I would not describe very much on that list as light and momentary. I mean, can you imagine him saying like, well, when they whipped me with the flogs that had metal shards on them, maybe they didn't do it as hard as they could. When they took the rods and they really beat me severely in Philippi, it was just, it didn't last very long. It was light and momentary. No, everything in that list sounds difficult. And there's a bunch of that list that we don't relate to. Um, But then at the end, he says some things that he can, we can relate to. At the end of the list, he says, and my job is hard. You ever said that? He says, besides, besides verse 28, everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. I'm stressed out because of work. And then he even says, temptation is hard. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? I'm tired. Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? This list is intense. It's not light and momentary. He was shipwrecked for crying out loud. The equivalent is if, if you needed to go and do ministry in some place and you got on a plane and it crashed. He was shipwrecked. Danger crossing rivers, danger from this people, danger from that people. So how can he say about that list, it's light and momentary? Well, back in chapter four, verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I mean, we experience lots of hard things, don't we? There's job stuff, cancer stuff, kids stuff, work stuff, marriage stuff, health stuff. And probably not very many of us would say about those things, whatever they are personal to you. Oh yeah, they're light and momentary. And that's not what Paul is saying either. He's saying they're light and momentary compared. Right? Compared. To the eternal weight of glory. See, here is what is going to happen. Um, This life is going to be hard. It is. Anybody who, any preacher who tells you differently is a liar. It's hard. It's hard now, it's going to be hard. A year from now, it's going to be hard. Ten years from now. 
you know what dawned on me? I've been visiting a lot of people in the hospital right now. I visited some regular people uh, in the hospital, and uh, I visited some people who have some resources in the hospital. You know what's crazy is their rooms are the same size. Whether you have a lot in this life or a little in this life, probably most of us are going to end up in a hospital bed in a 10 by 10 room. Life is hard. But Paul was able to say, oh, that's stuff. It's light and momentary because when you transition in a split second from this life to eternal life, God, he, he's going to drop on you a boulder of his goodness. And compared to the boulder of goodness that is waiting on you, whatever I am going through right now is light and momentary. And so we got to settle this. We just got to believe it. Uh, And we got to believe it before we get cancer. And we got to believe it before our teenagers start to question the faith that we've tried so desperately to hand down to them. We got to believe it before the marriage gets hard. We got to believe it before we lose our job. I have settled, you have settled that one day there is a boulder of God's goodness that is coming to me. So now everything before that boulder is light and momentary. And once we settle this, that the scales will not be balanced in eternal life, then we're able to take our light and momentary suffering and say to God, here, I give it to you as an offering. Which takes us back to John chapter 9. The disciples ask, whose fault is this? And Jesus says, no, it's not, it's not his parents' fault. It's not his fault. It's a stew of suffering. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, Jesus is saying, I only got a little bit of time left before I'm arrested and crucified, resurrected, ascending back to heaven. So I got this window of opportunity. And while we've got this window of opportunity, we've got to do the works of God. Thankfully, two chapters ago, John told us what the works of God happens to be. John chapter six, verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this. So if you've ever wondered, what does God want from me? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The work of God is that people would believe, remember sent, our our key word for the gospel of John, that God has sent Jesus to do his work and offer people eternal life forgiveness for their sins through his crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection. That's the work of God. And Jesus says, we only got this little window here to do the works of God. And this man's suffering is a display of God's work. 
One of Amanda and I's favorite things to do is to go to the movies, appropriate, you know, I'm a pastor, but to go see movies. And if you go to the movie, you might be tempted to say, what I'm watching up there is the movie. But technically, that's not the movie. The movie is in that little window back behind you. You ever look back there, right? Uh, years ago, when I was a kid, and many of us were kids, there was actually a, a, a film role back there, right? Um, that was the movie. Now it's, you know, the devil's technology, so no, who knows where it is, you know? Uh, right. What I'm watching up there is the movie displayed. Right? And Jesus says about this man who was born blind, his suffering, his injustice, his scales not balanced, is the perfect screen for God to tell whatever story God wants to tell. So when you and I have settled, I know at the end of the day, God is going to give me a boulder of his goodness. I settled that. So now God, will you take this suffering, this injustice that I feel in my soul about myself or about somebody else, and will you use it to display your work so that more people will come to believe that Jesus is your son whom you've sent in this world to offer people eternal life. Now that's hard to hear. That's a hard truth because what I wish Jesus had said was the best possible movie screen for the story of God seen in Christ is my easy life and joy and happiness. I mean, that's the pitch that I would have made. God, wouldn't you be the most glorified if I won the lottery? You know how many people I could help? You know how many ministries I could fund if I won the lottery? I would never cease telling of your greatness if I became a billionaire. <laughs> you know what your friends would say if you won a billion dollars? Well, of course you're happy. You got a billion dollars. Of course you trust God. Who wouldn't? That's why when you hear billionaires complain about how hard their life is, you're like, shut up. Why don't you go hang out on your island? But if you hear someone in a 10 by 10 room at MD Anderson proclaim the goodness of God by faith, You cannot deny that. When you walk into a 10 by 10 room at Memorial Hermann and the peace of God is in the room, no atheist would touch that. It's a hard truth, but God has declared that the best possible screen display for the work that he has done and is doing and will do is not our ease, but our suffering. And we are okay with that because we know about the boulder of God's goodness that that light and momentary suffering is earning for us. Jesus says, while I'm in this world, I am the light of the world. Back in John chapter one, it says that in him was life and that life was the light of mankind. In Jesus was the life of God. 
And when the world looked at it, the life of God appeared to them as light. And when you and I settle this, even today, and we walk through our pain and we offer up our suffering as a screen, a display for God's glory and goodness in this world, it will be as light to the world. This season that you're in, if it's hard, it will pass. The thing that you're going through now, it won't, it won't be forever. The question at the end is, will God have, has, will God have had used it? You know, Jesus only ministered for three years. So technically I have more seniority than Jesus. And in three years, he turned the world upside down. We're still sitting here today. Uh, And God can use this short season that you're in of suffering right now that injustice and unfairness that you feel in your soul. It tells a good story. Let's pray.